morning. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be in the beginning of Matthew 18. Um, let me add on to what Mark and Travis have already told you. We welcome you here. We're glad you're here. Um, out of all the options uh, presented to you today, you chose to be here in, the, uh, in God's house, and we're thankful for that. And uh, we don't believe that's an accident, so... I just ask that you stick with us, hang with us, and uh, um, see what he might do over these next few moments. Um, I've always loved kids. So it's no surprise to me that uh, being a father has brought me sort of an immeasurable amount of joy. Um, I have a two-year-old daughter named Tadia, and if the ultrasound technician is to be believed, there's another girl that's going to be arriving within a month or so. Um, And Corinne and I are really excited, and, and even Hattie is too for now. Um, I think that might change one of these days, but for now, she's excited. Um, just a few weeks back, she asked when baby sister, if baby sister was getting ready to come, and I said, no, you're going to have to wait a little bit farther. It's getting a little longer off. And she, her response to me was, well, maybe baby sister will just want to hop out sooner. And I thought, man, every woman in here, like, if that was just how it happened, if they just hopped out, you know, it would be a whole lot easier. Um, but we've been trying to prep Hattie for how her world is going to change. We told her that baby sister's probably going to cry a lot, that, that she'll take up a lot of mommy's time, that she'll have to get older before Hattie can play with her. Um, and I was having one of those talks with her this week, and I said, Hattie, are you still excited that the baby sister's coming soon? She said, oh, yes, you know. And, and so I told her, I said, now, you must know, when the baby gets here, I'm going to need you to be a really big help to mommy. She's going to be really busy taking care of the new baby, and so you're going to have to help out even more than you do already. She said, okay, Daddy. And not wanting to let this moment of agreement pass, I asked her, well, do you have any ideas how you could help out Mommy more, ways you could pitch in and help? Any great ideas? And she was eating the snack, and she literally stopped chewing and just stared at me for seven to ten seconds, and I could see the wheels turning. And finally she said, I don't have any great ideas. And then she walked off. See, children just bring joy. Any loving parent can attest to that. And as, as a society, we're entertained by kids. We honor kids. We even cross boundaries sometimes and are capable of worshiping our kids. But as grown adults, we don't, we don't want to be like kids. See, we talk about how nice it would be to go back in time and not have the worries and demands of life. But even as we say that, one of the most harmful insults that you could ever give an adult is to tell them that they need to grow up. Because you see, part of growing up is becoming self-reliant. Man, oh man, do we, do we hold self-reliance as a high value in America? We're proud of ourselves when we provide for our family. Do you hear the language? We provide for our family. We give places of honor to those who always live and function within their means. We hype and worship the idea of hard work. That it's by the sweat of my brow that I have what I have. Everything I've got in life, I've fought for it, I've worked for it, and I've earned it. And you better believe I'm proud of it, because that's the American way. Anybody can start anywhere, and through hard work, can make something great of themselves. So you see, it's not that surprising that in in American Christianity, these ideas have wedged their way in over time. That as the church has ministered to a culture that holds self-reliance and self-sufficiency so dear that it began to mold these ideas into the way we view our relationships with God. And if you ever want a nice image of the current trends and theologies of the American church, just look at church signs when you drive down the highway. You'll get the message. Like the one we've all heard and I saw recently. 
God helps those who help themselves. Another popular slogan in American Christianity, do your best, let God do the rest. They sound holy, don't they? They sound right. There's probably a pretty big part of us that wants to affirm these. The problem is that when we compare those ideas to the things that our culture holds dear, and then we compare those ideas to the things the New Testament teaches, what we find is that God helps those who help themselves sounds a whole lot more like everything I've got, I earned it, than it does anything in the New Testament. See, we're in, a, we're in a series called Pursuing Christ, and the idea for this series flows out of a statement from Apostle Paul that he made in Philippians 3, that Paul stated his overarching goal for life and ministry was that he wanted to know Christ. And he writes that in doing so, he would become more like him. The goal was simply to know Jesus better, and the result is transformation. And the reason for this is that as you get to know Jesus better, you're going to discover he's not like you at all. We warned you last week that this idea, this process, was not going to be easy. And last week we started by looking closely at how Jesus, at his very core, pursued others. He looked out for others first. He came to be a servant. He he gave his life for others. We reminded of just how short of that mark we all fall. Because we pursue ourselves first, almost always. And what we need is for Jesus to change us, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to quote Romans 12. So that we can begin to have the mind of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus' mind is, is oriented and works in ways that ours does not. It's because he's different than we are. But the ironic part about our topic today is that often when we talk about how different Jesus is than you or I, we focus on his divinity or his power. We talk about his ability, his ability to perform miracles or read minds or walk on water, defeat death, you name it. So I'm thinking that if, that if anyone ever throughout history would be self-sufficient and self-reliant, it would be Jesus Christ. If anyone would have been right to rely fully on their own power and strength, there's no greater candidate than, for that than Jesus Christ. If anyone, quote, helped themselves, it'd be Jesus. Especially if he valued that characteristic in the slightest. So that's why it's striking to me that one day in Jerusalem, Jesus was addressing a group of people, a group of Jewish religious leaders who were wanting to kill him. And in John 5, Jesus had this to say. He said, I tell you the truth, the son, he's referring to himself, the son can do nothing by himself. I'll let you hear that again. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son. You see, it's true that Jesus had a power that has power that you and I could never have. It's true that Jesus is literally God in the flesh. But however, it's also true that the majority of the power displayed in the life of Christ flowed from the way he lived. Not as a ruler, not as a powerful being, but as a son, as a child of God. As a son who in childlike manner submitted to a loving father. Jesus says in John 6, I came from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. See, Jesus Christ lived his life fully embracing his identity as a child, as a beloved son of God, his father in heaven. He was reliant on his father. He took orders and cues and leadings from his father. He carried out his father's work. He did the will of his father. And though he was capable of being self-reliant, though he could have been self-made, he was not, not in the slightest. 
He said, I can do nothing by myself. And one of the greatest ironies of the human condition is that we are not capable of being self-reliant. We don't have the power to be self-made, yet we are fully convinced that we can and we do. And so we set, so we live our lives and set our priorities and we use language and we make decisions all flowing from that air and thinking that it's by the sweat of my brow that I am here. Or thinking that, that God has added some sort of additional blessing to my life on top of what I've already built because he was just so impressed with me for helping myself. See, Jesus has a response for that too. Had you turn to Matthew 18, look at verse 1. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, if you remember last week, Jesus kept talking about how he would give his life for the sins of the world. He kept talking about how to be great is to be a servant of all, to be first is to be last. And the entire time the disciples are in his presence, they listen to what he says, and then they turn around and immediately get in arguments about who is greater. They're in the same place, at the same time, having the same conversation, but they're in two totally different worlds. And in Matthew chapter 18, they're at it again. They're wanting to know who's the greatest. What's the measure of greatness that they can strive to achieve? And Jesus has a response to them I'm certain they weren't ready for. Look at verse 2. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did he really just say that? Listen, Jesus is not talking to people he just bumped into on the street here. He's not talking to the Pharisees who opposed his ministry every chance he got. He's talking to his disciples, this group of men who have left everything to follow him. We mock the disciples a lot in church, but the thing is, they gave up more to follow Jesus than any of us ever have. This group of men who has been with him for over two years, these men who have traveled with him and served him and learned from him, and Jesus says to them, to that group, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That after all they had done, after all the devotion they had showed, unless they became like a child, they wouldn't even get in. It seems to me that we might want to make some sense of this because Jesus is strongly indicating here this is pretty important. He continues in verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So not only can you not get into the kingdom of heaven unless you become like a child, if you humble yourself like a child, you will become the greatest in the kingdom. Clearly, Jesus is trying to drive this point home and show how important this is. Elsewhere in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 10, people were bringing little children to Jesus so that he could bless them and touch them. And we read, the disciples just got annoyed at this. His children were just distracting things or getting in the way. And, and so they just started rebuking those who were bringing the children, trying to send them off. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Translated, he was really ticked off. And he said to the disciples, let the children come, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, if anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And what's interesting to me is that in verse 3 of Matthew 18, Jesus comes right out and says that we need to change. He says we must change and become like little children if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus knows this is not going to be natural for us. 
He knows this goes against the grain of our sinful being. That's why we so easily buy into the lie of self-sufficiency. Because in our pride, the idea that we could become self-sufficient is very attractive. And so we broadcast that in our relationship with God. There are countless souls who enter into an eternity without God because they believed and were convinced a lie of the lie that somehow in their own efforts they could be good enough to get to heaven. There are countless Christians today who live lives that have limited or no victories. There are countless Christians who never take steps of faith, who never act out in risk, who never fully trust God because they are living self-sufficiently. It's because they profess to believe in a God who is all-powerful and then arrange their lives in ways that they would never need to tap into that power. It's because they profess to believe in a God whose resources are endless and then they never act in faith to the point where they would need him to come through. There are countless Christians today who are not experiencing a life immersed in God's love and grace because they are serving out of duty. Because they believe that in order for God to move in their life, they must do all the work first because they see God as a taskmaster and not a loving father. So what are, what are the implications for us that when Jesus Christ came to earth, even in his power, he embraced childlikeness? What does it mean that he calls us to do the same? What does it mean that he even went as far as to say that if we do not become like a child, we can never enter into God's kingdom? And what would it look like for us to be more childlike, to start living out our relationship with God as a child would? Now, God is described as a father hundreds of times in the New Testament. But you see, a relationship with a father isn't all that we are called to. In Romans 8, we are told that we received a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father, to God. Now, the word Abba there is literally translated as Daddy. And so what Paul tells us in Romans is that when we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive a spirit of childlikeness, a spirit that makes us call out to God as if he is our daddy. And if you are like me when you read that verse, and what I mean by that is if you are a male, this may seem strange to you. It's not a huge rallying cry to get a lot of men together. My father coached football for 30 years. I've never heard him give a pregame speech about say, all right, guys, we're going to go out and be like children tonight. Everyone put your hands in and say, Daddy, on three. Wouldn't really fire him up. But you see, we have to understand this, because Jesus isn't calling you to give up your masculinity. He created with you. He's not calling you to be childish either. If anyone's being childish in the counts in Matthew 18 and Mark 10, it's the disciples, and Jesus is rebuking them. No, the call is childlikeness. And as the father of a toddler myself, I've been able to observe some things in Hattie's life that are similar to the things that, that Jesus operated in the type of life and faith that he calls us to. And the first thing that little children do is they have an unbelievable capacity to trust. Do you know in her entire life, Hattie has never once asked me where her next meal will come from? She hasn't spent one single moment worrying about whether or not she'll have clothes to wear tomorrow. She's never wondered or worried about whether or not the mortgage is getting paid. She simply just works under the assumption and complete trust that all those things are just going to be taken care of. It's in someone else's hands. I can hear the words of Christ in Matthew 6. Therefore, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or what you will wear, for the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. 
So Jesus backed us up too with the, with the miracles he performed, the popularity he had. He could have gotten money from anywhere. With the resources of heaven at his fingertips, he could have set up a nice little nest egg for his time here on earth. But when a teacher of law came to Jesus in Matthew 8 saying that he would follow Christ wherever he went, Jesus reminded this guy he didn't even have a bed to sleep on at night. See, Jesus stored up no earthly possessions, and he didn't do so because he thinks earthly possessions are evil or wrong. He did so because he trusted his Father to provide. He knew that the Father was completely aware of his earthly needs. He knew that they would be taken care of. One morning recently, after a storm the night before, Corinne and Hattie walked outside to find out that our trash can had been blown over. It's tipped over in the driveway. And Hattie asked what had happened, and Corinne explained to her that, that the, the rainstorm the night before knocked it over, and Hattie responded, silly rain. God will have to tip the, the trash can back up, though. Now, you and I both know that I tipped that trash can back up. Not God. But you know, when I go through my life and in my day trying to solve all my problems with my own power and my own wisdom and my own strength, that my little girl saying, God will tip it back up, means she is closer to fully embracing the kingdom of God than I am. And I'm not ready to remove that from her. See, I wonder when's the last time you felt God calling you to sacrifice and to give to the kingdom beyond what fit into your budget? When's the last time that God asked you to give to the point that it hurt? When's the last time he placed it on your heart to rid yourself of a possession that you really liked because someone else could use it? Let me ask you, did you respond as a responsible adult? Did you lessen the amount to give in the name of wisdom or good financial sense? Did you explain away the call in your head with solid, rational thinking? Or did you, without a moment's notice, give irrationally, trusting without fear that your heavenly Father would meet your need? See, little children trust, and not even because they've made a determination to do so. It's because they realize it's not their job to provide. They live their lives, they play their roles, and somehow, way, the needs will be met. Jesus Christ lived his life, he played the role that God called him to play, and his needs were met, and the call for us is to do the same. Children do more than trust, however. Every evening that I come home from work, I hear the same sound, the shriek of daddy and the sound of little footprints running first through the living room and into the kitchen as she races to give me a hug. Some of you parents with teenagers had forgotten until this very moment that those days actually did occur for you with your child at one time. Maybe they're now coming back in your memory and a large part of you longs for those days, for that time in your life in which your children actually pursued you. See, I know it's a phase, but I'm trying to enjoy it because Hattie is unashamedly selfish with my time. When I get home, she wants me to play with her, to run with her, to let her show me things. And even if her mom tries to talk to me on some evenings, Hattie has told her mother, whom she loves, to leave the room. Because mom's interfering with her time with daddy. I've read in the Gospels where Jesus would go off by himself to a solitary place. And I read that he did this over and over and over again. And what was he doing? He was going to talk with his father. To pray, to invest, to pursue that relationship. Even Jesus had a habit of removing all distractions and all interferences and focusing all of his pursuits on God. 
This went deep enough that on multiple occasions, Jesus made the statement, the Father and I are one. That they were completely unified of the same mind, of the same spirit, the same priorities and the same goals, all because the Son pursued the Father. When was the last time you ran to Christ? When was the last time you forcefully removed a distraction in your life between you and him? When was the last time you gave him priority in your day? See, the call is to become like a child. Little children trust and they pursue. They also abandon everything else. Whether it's plans or caution or their will or what, whatever they are up to, you name it. It's abandoned in the name of the Father. I get home at night, and it is more than just run to me and give me a hug. I can't ever tell you what she was doing before I arrived, because to her it doesn't matter. Whatever was, was occupying with her time, it's gone. It's over. She's put it in the past because it's done with, because her daddy is now home and she can relate with him. Before Jesus came to this earth, he was in heaven, a place of ultimate perfection, a place of round-the-clock praise, a place of wonders and glories that we have never known. But when the Father commissioned him to come here, none of that mattered anymore. His pursuit was of his Father and to do his Father's will, no matter where that led him. And all of us, before we came into a relationship with Christ, we all pursued something. We spent our lives chasing something. And Jesus says that to enter the kingdom of God, we must become like a little child and none of that can matter anymore. Because now we are home. Now we can relate with our daddy. And get this, what he wants to do, well, that's, that's what we want to do. The goals that he has in mind, they become our goals. And all that stuff we were chasing, all that stuff that we were living for, it just doesn't matter anymore because it cannot compare with the relationship that we have with our father. And we abandon more than goals and plans as well. When we become a child, we abandon our sense of self-preservation. We just don't have it anymore. One night, shortly after she learned to go down the stairs, Hattie was making her way to the basement. And she was heading down the stairs a little too fast for Corinne's comfort. So she told her, Hattie, slow down. I don't want you to fall. And Hattie said, it's okay, Mommy. Daddy will save me. I wasn't even home. But you see, when we come to Jesus as a child, we give no mind to self-preservation. When we come as a child, we are not struck by fear. When we come as a child, we do not mind the risk. Because when we come as a child, we trust that no matter what happens, our Father will save us. This is Jesus laying on his face, weeping, stressed to the point where he was sweating blood, just overcome with emotion, laying there in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing full well that he would face a level of suffering the next day that no one has endured before or since. And yet, despite it all, saying to his Father, but not my will, but your will be done. You see, the the truth is Jesus Christ did not walk to the cross as God. He did not walk to the cross as one whose power was endless. He was both of those things. But he walked to the cross and endured because he walked toward his cross as a child. Trusting the entire time that his father had greater things in mind. So where is it that you've just gotten old? Not physically. We don't have time to list all those. Where is it that you've just gotten old? Where is it you are trusting in your own strength? Giving yourself all the glory and the credit. Where is it you simply just don't pursue him anymore? 
What are you holding on to? What, what won't you give up for Christ? You know, we may esteem effort in this society, but it's when we turn the work over to God that we're most effective. We may pursue ourselves constantly in this culture, but it's only when we pursue Christ that the end result is worth anything. And it may strike us as funny. It may seem as a complete lack of masculinity. It may seem touchy-feely to pursue God as our daddy. But it's only when we come as a child that we receive his power in us. It's only when we come as a child that we can abandon all previous pursuits. It's only when we come as a child that we can do something remarkably brave when we abandon all caution and self-preservation. And it's simply because our trust is not in us. It was the middle of winter in the year... Uh, 320, Rome was engaged in war and their emperor Licinius sent out an edict that all soldiers were to offer a sacrifice to the pagan gods before battle. And in the midst of the famed 12th region of Rome's imperial, legion of Rome's imperial army were 40 soldiers, all who were Christians. Church history tells us that they refused to take part in the sacrifices, telling their commanding officers, you can have our armor, you can even have our bodies, but our heart's allegiance belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, their officers didn't take too well to this. So the captain had them marched onto a nearby frozen lake. He stripped them of all their clothes and said they would either die or renounce Christ. Throughout the night, these men huddled together singing, and one by one, however, they collapsed and fell to the ice as the temperature overtook them. All until at last, there was just one man left. In the midst of his suffering... In the midst of his delirium, he lost his courage, he stumbled to the shore, he renounced Christ and saved his life. There was a Roman officer of the guards who watched this entire thing. Unknown to the others, the witness of the 39 men dying for Christ moved him so much that he placed his faith in Jesus that night. And when this man saw that last man break rank, come in and renounce Christ, he knew he had to do something, so he walked out onto the ice. And he shed his clothes and announced to the entire legion that he too was placing his faith in Jesus Christ. And by sunrise, there were 40 bodies of soldiers who had fought to the death for Jesus. Now what gets you there? To pay a price that you don't have to. All in the name of Jesus Christ. What gets you to that level of faith? What gets you to the point of enduring suffering all the way to death? What gets you to not value your own well-being more than your pursuit of Jesus? Well, it's perfectly modeled by Jesus who in John 10 says, The reason the Father loves me is that I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And this command I received from who? This command I received from my Father. It's Jesus displaying the trust, pursuit, and abandonment of a little child. It's Jesus not caring for his own well-being, but only that he does the will of the Father. And it's a group of Roman soldiers. It's Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. It's Frank Drown and any others who put themselves in harm's way because their only trust was in Jesus. And it's any follower of Christ who sheds their strength, who sheds their bank account, who sheds their rational thinking and planning... It's any follower of Christ who stops chasing their own dreams or trying to become great, who abandons past pursuits and live a life fully embraced in their identity as a son or a daughter of the King of Kings. 
Jesus said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we'll just close with this question. How grown up is your faith? Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize that children never view themselves as self-sufficient. Children never view themselves as holy. Children never see themselves as powerful. These are just adult fantasies. So we come to you this morning. To the one whom, despite endless power, became like a child... And we ask you to make us more and more childlike and less and less self-reliant. Only you can do this in us. And so we pray for that right now. And we ask it in your name. Amen.
we have some people to baptize today. Um, so join me in this celebration. I'm going to ask Austin to come down here. This is uh, Austin Hankins. He's a sophomore. Yeah. Sophomore at North. Um, he uh, went to Student Life Camp with us this year. I got to know him uh, roughly springtime, and uh, he came to Student Life Camp with us this year. And uh, it was actually a conversation about baptism um, that he uh, just got. The opportunity was presented to talk to him about the gospel. And uh, that night, uh, him, me and my dad and some other high schoolers uh, prayed with him and accepted Christ that night. So we're going to baptize him today. It's awesome. So, uh, Austin, have you accepted Christ as your personal Yes, I did. Awesome, man. Baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, bearing likeness of his death. This is uh, Justice Arnie, also a sophomore at North, and uh, she got saved at another youth group uh, in the spring, and then she came over here, and she loves this church, and she loves the church body. Uh, she wanted to get baptized today. She's actually so nervous and excited. Uh, she had a dream that I was going to drown her um, today, so I hope to prove her wrong. Uh, no, no promises or anything. I'm just kidding. Uh, but this is Justice. Um, Justice, have you accepted Christ as your personal and Savior? Yes. Awesome. Baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. got saved this morning um, over the topic of just baptism, and she just wants to get baptized and just show you all uh, her new faith in Christ. Uh, so it's crazy exciting uh, to have her. She's been coming. She's a really good friend of Justice. So yes, absolutely. We're going to baptize Stephanie. Stephanie, have you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. Awesome. We're baptizing the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. making a profession now and David I baptize you in the name of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit buried in the light buried in the likeness of him Brett, you spoke about following in spite of fear there, didn't you? So we saw that so vividly before us, just in um, the wonderful picture of following after Jesus Christ in baptism. So to God be the glory, amen. How thankful we are um, for his faithfulness and for the power of the gospel to transform, transform a human life. Uh, Pastor and Mrs. Dick Smith, we're so glad that you're here.